Hey there, listeners. As I mentioned last time on Art Curious, I am traveling this month, and so I will be re-airing some older episodes for you to enjoy here once again during the wait. In celebration of our recent Cherchez la Femme season, season 11, I have chosen three of my favorite episodes on female artists. Today, I am returning with the story of Romaine Brooks, a one-of-a-kind painter with a truly fascinating story. So I hope you enjoy it, and I will be back with you soon. Stay curious. What exactly is avant-garde art? What would you call the edgiest works being made now? Or how about 100 years ago, during that first chunk of the revolutionary 20th century? When many historians and lay people alike think about avant-garde artists who were making and breaking art in the first part of our last century, our minds go straight to people like Picasso, Duchamp, Malevich, Kandinsky, and more. People, mostly men, who were moving incessantly towards abstraction, away from representing the world and the individuals surrounding them, or at least not representing them in a realistic or naturalistic way. But can a portrait, a recognizable image of a real-life person, be avant-garde? Or shake things up? Can a portrait truly be new and different? Sure, and I'm going to tell you why. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season seven, we're uncovering the coolest artists you don't know. And today, we are glimpsing the incredible, unconventional, and non-conforming portraits by Romaine Brooks. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Romaine Brooks is a relatively unknown artist to most folks. And I'm not ashamed to say, hey, you know what? She was kind of unknown to me, too, until, like, a couple of years ago. But I guess I can't be totally blamed for my ignorance, because like many women of her generation and beyond, she does not appear in most art history survey textbooks. And she wasn't the star of many major art exhibitions, though she was honored with a career retrospective at the Smithsonian in 1970, which was the same year that she died at age 96. Though little known outside of smallish art circles, she rubbed shoulders with European aristocracy and other prominent figures from the 20th century, creating enticing and engaging portraits of many a familiar face, created frequently in an androgynous or gender non-conforming style. And it's something that put Brooks outside of the mainstream during her lifetime. And now, it's about time to bring her back into the fold of art history as an artist truly meant to be explored in our own time. Beatrice Romaine Goddard, whom we will refer to as Romaine, was born on May 1, 1874, to a wealthy American family living at Rome. Now, from this line alone, you may think that little baby Romaine had it made, that she had entered cleanly into the good life. That is not so. Her early life was marked repeatedly by tragedies both great and small. 
Her parents divorced when she was very young, and her father went on to essentially abandon his family entirely. Romaine was thus raised mainly by her mother, who transferred the family then to New York. But her mother was unstable and distant, and she went on to emotionally abuse her daughter while giving all of her love and attention to Romaine's brother, St. Mar, who was mentally ill and whose own emotional issues meant that he was prone to violent physical outbursts. In some ways then, it made what happened next a small blessing, if not an ideal situation. Just before the age of seven, Romaine was abandoned by her mother, who went to Europe to live with St. Mar. Romaine was left behind, fostered with a laundress and her family in a tenement in New York City. Her mother stopped providing for her entirely after a brief period of time. But Romaine's foster family, though poor, had something wonderful, love for their little Romaine. Even in the midst of financial hardship, they cared for her as if she was their own and encouraged her joyfully in her early interests, especially one in particular, drawing. Even though her so-called foster family was able to sustain their new charge, they still knew that some family contact, any biological family contact, would be a good thing. So after a search, they located Romaine's grandfather, Isaac S. Waterman, family patriarch and a multi-millionaire businessman. At first, Romaine was terrified. She assumed her grandfather would force her to live back with her abusive mother. But instead, Waterman took on the role of provider for her, sending her to boarding school and giving her the education she needed to make her own way in the world. And to make her own way, she did. In 1893, at the age of 19, Romaine moved to Paris. Initially, music was her primary focus, and what little allowance she received from her family was used to pay for voice lessons. She made little money in this realm, however, living in squalor for the first few years and bolstered only by the occasional singing gig at a cabaret before another calamity hit. Romaine discovered that she was pregnant. She was just 23, and this was 1897, surely not a wonderful time for a young woman to find herself unwed and expecting a child. She gave birth to a daughter in February of that year and made what must have been an excruciating decision to leave her baby behind at a convent for her care. But surely she needed to, to be able to afford to support herself, especially with such little family wealth sent her way. And so she decided to return to the city of her birth, Rome. And it was there that she opted to study visual art with the intention of supporting herself through painting. So she moved to the Eternal City later that year. We've spoken many times on the Art Curious podcast about the various difficulties that female artists have had to face throughout history, including the problems with securing an education to sufficiently address the needs of a woman hoping to make it in the big leagues as a working artist. Luckily, Romaine was working just before the dawn of the 20th century, so art education was more egalitarian than in the past. That being said, she was the only woman in her life-drawing class, for example, because, as we've mentioned in the past, it was deemed... Um, an issue for women to draw from a nude model. So she already stuck out like a sore thumb on that end. But even worse, she began to be the target of sexual harassment by several classmates. Not that she was unable to take care of herself, though. There's this fantastic story about her strength and her sass, wherein one day she entered the art studio to find a book left open on her stool with several pornographic passages underlined for her attention. 
Rather than blushing horrified at the untoward discovery, she snapped up the book and used it to hit her perpetrator squarely in the face. Now, that is awesome. The crappy part, though, is that it didn't work. She continued to be harassed, and the same porn-providing classmate even stalked her and attempted to force her into marriage. Brooks escaped, taking up residence on the Italian island of Capri, and struggled to the point of starvation before she received more bad news. Her brother, St. Mar, had died. Thus responsible for the care of her grieving mother, Romaine Brooks returned to New York and to familial duty. Less than a year later, Romaine Brooks witnessed the death of her own mother from complications of diabetes and other ailments. The death, though, may have been sort of a relief, a cutting of the family ties that were so painful to her. And truly, it was a life-changing moment for Romaine, as she inherited part of her mother and maternal grandfather's estates, meaning that the poverty of her childhood and the extreme struggle of her early adult years were finally coming to an end. At the age of 27, Brooks moved to Paris, relocating to the super-chic 16th arrondissement, which was a rather sophisticated part of town. And it was at this point that she began moving in the world of the uber-wealthy, where she received major commissions for portraits, especially from many of the rich women around her. But by 1904, she was looking for a change, not in career or in subject matter, but in artistic style. The first thing to go was color, the bright, expressive colors she previously used in her portraits. Instead, she transitioned to gradients of, well, gray. After this time, almost all of her portraits are in tones of gray, black, and white, with only brief or minute touches of color to the canvas, such as the occasional earth tone or a tiny pop of teal. Inspired by folks like James McNeil Whistler, Charles Condor, or our old art curious pal Walter Sickert, Brooks's images became startlingly fresh, cool, and oh-so-modern. More on that is coming right up next, after this break. And now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. I know that in the past, sometimes it's been really easy for me to focus on the negative side of things instead of the positive side of things. I always got stuck focusing on the problems in my life instead of thinking about the good things or even thinking about possible solutions to the problems. It can be tough to train our brains to stay in problem-solving mode when we are faced with a huge challenge in life. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there is no better feeling. And a therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier for you to accomplish your goals in the future and in the present, no matter how big or small. I have enjoyed therapy in the past, including therapy with BetterHelp. And it really inspired me because I was able to learn ways to help with emotional healing and stress overload all on my own based on tips and tricks that my therapist was able to help me with. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a wonderful option because it's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. And you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time for any reason. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can help get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash artcurious today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash artcurious. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Honey Love. Ladies, let's talk about shapewear. We all know that most shapewear makes you feel like you're suffocating. That sexy dress in the back of your closet is so freaking cute. But the thought of having your inside squished by your shapewear is just not worth it. And that is why Honey Love spent years researching and developing effective shapewear that's actually comfortable. Overly tight, cheap, and sticky fabrics that roll up are a thing of the past. Thanks to Honey Love, you can finally feel comfortable and confident in your favorite outfits. I love Honey Love, and that is a serious statement because I feel so cool and comfy when I wear their best-selling superpower short. Their signature X targets and sculpts your midsection without squeezing your natural beautiful curves, so it's designed to work with your body and not against it. It's not only got these great sculpting boost bands that also help your bum look fantastic, by the way, but here is my favorite part. They don't roll down. That is a major bummer that is all too common with shapewear, and we know that that struggle is real. But finally, it's not because of Honey Love. And it doesn't just stop there. Honey Love also has more than just sculpt wear. They also have incredibly beautiful and comfortable bras, tanks, and leggings for everyday support. And again, that beauty is part of it because this is pretty stuff that also just happens to have your comfort at the front of mind. We have an exclusive deal for our listeners today. For a limited time, you can get Honey Love's best deal that they offer. Get 20% off your first order with the code ARTCURIOUS at honeylove.com. No matter the occasion, you deserve to look and feel your absolute best. Get 20% off at honeylove.com with the code ARTCURIOUS. A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. Calling all my honeys. You deserve this. Welcome back to Art Curious. In 1910, Romaine Brooks had her first solo show at the renowned Durant Royal Gallery, the same gallery that so successfully supported the Impressionists and many other avant-garde artists before her. At the show, she displayed 13 paintings, almost all of which depicted women or girls dressed in the feminine fashions of the day, bonnets, parasols, and veils of the Belle Epoque. Interestingly, Brooks also included two female nudes in this group of paintings, which was a rare choice for many female artists at the time. How scandalous. How avant-garde. Both of these works, called The Red Jacket and White Azaleas, and both from 1910, portray the female nudes in dark, quiet domestic settings, which add an air of intimacy to each scene. But Brooks doesn't shy away from her subject's sexualities here. In the red jacket, the model is clothed in the titular covering, but the jacket's flaps are wide open so that you have no choice but to have your eyes drawn directly to her breasts. And White Azaleas presents a woman laid out on a couch or a divan in a frankly erotic pose that some at the time compared to Manet's shocking Olympia, which we discussed in episode number 41. You can imagine that given the expectations placed on women, and especially female artists at this time, that this wasn't exactly a welcome addition to a ladies' art exhibition. But Brooks was fierce in her independence and proud of her achievements. The art history website and resource theartstory.org begins their great article on Romaine Brooks with one of the artist's most famous quotes, which directly links to this exhibition. Brooks said, quote, I grasped every occasion, no matter how small, to assert my independence of views. I refused to accept slavish traditions in art, and though aware that it would shock, I insisted on marking the sex triangles of all my female nudes." Unquote. 
Sadly, between the surprise of the nudes and her other psychologically intense portraits, the exhibition didn't bring Brooks the great successes that she had hoped for. Even her so-called friend, the poet Robert de Montesquieu, called her a, quote, thief of souls for her unsentimental and frank portraiture. Such criticism, combined with a growing disillusionment from Parisian high society, who frequently asked her to do interior design consultations, quelle horreur, grew to a fever pitch, with Brooks referring to herself as une lapidée, or a victim of stoning. Not everyone understood or got the way that Romaine Brooks wanted to present women in her paintings. Brooks's ideal woman was thin and elongated. Traditionally, the female ideal had been more voluptuous than Brooks's women. In comparison to his Eve from Rubens's famous The Fall of Man, the women in Romaine Brooks's works seem thin, gaunt, and fragile. Something highlighted further by the artist's use of gray and the other somber colors to which she gravitated. There's nothing bright or effusive or energetic about a Romaine Brooks portrait. Even more fascinating is her interest in challenging other conventional norms about gender depiction. Romaine Brooks was a cisgender bisexual, and her images of herself, such as the stunning 1923 self-portrait now at the Smithsonian, more about that in a second, and images of her friends and lovers definitely don't look like other portraits of women from this time period. Take, for example, her World War I masterpiece, The Cross of France, which presents her then-lover, the actress and dancer Ida Rubinstein, in a heroic and graceful turn as a battlefield nurse draped in a voluminous Red Cross uniform and suffused with an androgyny far ahead of its time. Though Romaine's art did not directly formally engage with avant-garde movements of her time, like Cubism or Dada, her own work is still avant-garde in its option to show a different side of womanhood, one that went against the grain of most traditional feminine displays. This image, by the way, scored a lot of press for Brooks, as she agreed to reproduce it in a booklet sold to raise money for the French Red Cross. And it was a highly successful fundraiser that eventually won the artist a prestigious cross of the Legion of Honor. Gender fluidity and sexual freedom were common among Brooks's social circle, especially in France, where she continued to work and socialize and where she would meet the partner who most influenced her life and work, Natalie Clifford Barney, a writer and a poet who would spend 50-plus years in a relationship with Brooks. Brooks and Barney met around 1914, and while their relationship had its ups and downs, as all relationships do, it is remarkable to note that these women remained devoted to each other for the vast majority of their lives. Romaine Brooks paid tribute to her partner in a gentle 1920 painting called Miss Natalie Barney, L'Amazon, or The Amazon, which presents her lover in a broad fur coat huddled against what appears to be a winter landscape, possibly as seen through a window. Like all of Brooks's portraits, there is a sense of androgyny here. But there's a little special addition that makes this painting stand out on its own. A small sculpture of a galloping horse added to the lower right of the canvas. The reason for this inclusion is noted by the title, referring to Barney as an Amazon. Like the mythical race of women warriors from ancient Greece, Brooks thought Barney was a powerful, wild, free spirit. A horse that runs onward and could not be broken. 
Of course, Barney liked horses and loved to ride them too, but Brooks's loving edition of the horse statue here isn't that pat. It's a proclamation of love for a woman who seemed larger than life to her, as powerful and mesmerizing as all of those kings, dukes, and knights of years ago who had had their own equestrian portraits. Most of Brooks's paintings in the late 19-teens and beyond into the 1920s came into her life due to the connections she made with Natalie Barney, with whom she hobnobbed with people like Truman Capote, Ayer Delano, who was an American artist, writer, and designer, Renata Borgatti, who was an Italian musician and another one of Brooks's lovers, and Hannah Gluckstein, known as Hannah Gluck, a gender non-conforming British painter. And the portraits that she did of many of these figures, especially of and in conjunction with Hannah Gluck, show the group's predilection for elements of male dress. This was both very on-trend for the time, but also had a particular symbolism for these women. In general, women's fashion changed in the 1920s, and an androgynous, masculine look became really popular throughout Europe, the United States, and beyond. The flapper dress, for example, which debuted for the first time in 1926, was formless rather than curve-hugging and was designed especially to highlight, or at least to flatter, a more flat-chested physique. Many flappers also gravitated toward the bob, a short haircut that was considered masculinizing at the time. And with the dawn of smoking as a popular, if still novel, pastime among women, the move towards something akin to gender nonconformity was as complete as it could be for the early 20th century. For Romaine Brooks, Hannah Gluck, and others, it was a boon, because within Parisian lesbian culture, women wearing elements of masculine dress was a way to signal their independence, as well as their sexual availability to one another. Examples of this can be seen in many of Brooks's works from this period, including but not limited to her wonderful portrait of Gluck, fascinatingly titled Peter, a Young English Girl, a work entitled that specifically confuses gender in a really wonderful way. Romaine Brooks's own self-portrait from 1923 presents the artist in her typical dark, subdued palette, wearing a man's riding outfit replete with a tall riding hat and leather gloves. While it shows us the kind of clothes that Brooks gravitated to wearing in real life in Paris and beyond, the way that her eyes are shaded slightly obscured by the brim of her hat, is psychologically profound. She looks directly at us, the viewers, but that veiling suggests something. Is it that she's hiding her true self, her true desires from us? From the outside, such masculinized portraits appear as very fashionable and trendy, but the deeper meaning, the subtle coding, was lost on most contemporary viewers. All of this was fabulously revolutionary for the modern era. Romaine Brooks was one of the first artists to create art specifically for a female gaze. Generally in the history of art, images of women were created for men and for the male heterosexual gaze, meaning that they were meant to be appreciated or objectified for and by men. Even art created by women sometimes fell into this same male gaze territory, with both sexes gravitating to creating art showing women as attractive and as sexual objects for the pleasure of men. Brooks, though, she created for a female gaze, and not from a perspective of what a man might find desirable, something which the artist herself balked against during her lifetime. Throughout her time, she did what she wanted, painted how she wanted to paint, and dressed how she wanted to dress. When, at the beginning of the 20th century, Romaine had briefly married gay British musician John Brooks, 
a year-long partnership forged out of convenience for both in a time of great misunderstanding and bias against homosexual relationships. Romaine, who took her husband's name, was subjected to his complaints about her donning of a masculine dress, saying that he was embarrassed to see her wearing men's clothes in public. Though she temporarily stopped dressing in this manner to appease her then-husband, she returned to it after their divorce and carried on with it throughout the rest of her life. The years following World War II were difficult for Romaine Brooks. Though she worked during the war and after, especially having been drawn to create surrealist-inspired works during the 1930s, her production precariously tipped lower and lower. Having fled France during the war, she holed up in a villa near Florence, Italy, where Natalie Barney would eventually join her in self-imposed exile from the war. When the war ended, Brooks declined to move back to Paris with Barney, and instead stayed on in Italy, where she became increasingly reclusive. It was at this moment where signs began to point to her failing health and increasing mental problems. Towards the end of her life, she opted to stay in her bedroom for several weeks at a time, proclaiming all sorts of illnesses, especially grieving her poor eyesight. She also became increasingly paranoid that someone was stealing her drawings and trying to poison her, and she even cautioned Natalie Barney at one point to avoid even communicating with plants, especially trees, in the garden, lest they, quote, suck us dry, unquote, of life force. Fearful, ill, and alone, she finally stopped responding to calls from visits from friends and responding to letters, even from Barney, she passed away in 1970 at the age of 96 at her home in Nice, France. The works of Romaine Brooks were just beginning to be re-examined around the time of her death and continued to grow in acclaim throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Since then, she has been lauded as a modern-day Sappho, rightly seen as celebrating gender nonconformity, making art for a gay female gaze, and creating new images of strong, non-binary, non-gender conforming persons. Brooks portrayed her subjects as strong, powerful, and confident, thereby heroizing them. In explaining the development of art history, we often seek artists who conform and confirm to paradigms that we have created through bias. Romaine Brooks does not follow the zeitgeist of her day with bright colors and abstract approaches, and yet her art was very avant-garde for the time and so she deserves a place in the canon for pushing these social and gendered boundaries in Paris in the 20th century. Romaine Brooks is an example of how artists can be marginalized within the field of art history, and how traditional approaches to art history often cannot properly accommodate the many complexities of our field. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Joe Smallin and Stephanie Pryor. Also check out our friends at theartstory.org for lots of excellent free content all centered around art history. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at kabonki.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. 
please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors and donations and advertising to keep us going. And so if you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider donating to help us. And thank you for your kindness. For more details about our show, including the images mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.